you would open up your Bible, uh, we're going to turn and we're going to be reading again in in Matthew chapter 4, verse uh, 1, and we're going to read to verse 11. Um, and, and this is actually going to roll right into our, uh, our Christmas messages, this, uh, this study, the account of the temptation of Jesus. And um, it's funny, somebody came up to me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, do you like it when they put all the decorations out in, um, in, the, in the stores? Like Thanksgiving hasn't even happened and, and all the Christmas stuff is out. Do you, do you like that? And I said, no, that's so irritating. And he said, you did Christmas before Christmas, before Thanksgiving. In Matthew. That was supposed to be funny. Anyway, all right. Uh, moving on. Yeah, failed joke. Okay, maybe this is the signs of the times. Maybe that's, um, maybe things will get better. Um, so uh, we're going to read Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we're going to then pray and turn to God's word. Uh, the scripture says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to this account of the temptation. We, we see this face-off between Jesus and the adversary, the one who prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we, we look at this and we say, yes, we realize that we live in a world that is still hurting, still in combat. There is still a spiritual war going on. We need only look to the news to see that there is still struggle and pain and shock in the world, and that we have a reason to be fearful and to protect and to be aware of of, of difficult things going on around us. We know that Jesus came to bring a new message to the world, to announce the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world, to announce the righteous reign of God and God's plan to make every wicked and evil thing come untrue, to bring change, to restore the the kingdom which was in the beginning, the, the, the perfect world which you created. And we don't yet see it, but we believe that in Jesus, in his way, in his work, in his words, 
that the answers are there and that, and that the gospel is the good news that you are changing things. And so we look to Jesus, Lord. Lord Jesus, we look to you to teach us how to handle the despair and the temptation and the frustration and the attack that we might know how to endure and how to stand and how to look to the future with hope and how to rely and wait on our Father and on you. We pray that you would teach us now from the scriptures. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The account uh, in Greek mythology of Daedalus and Icarus, um, the details are not super important, but uh, Daedalus was imprisoned on the Isle of Crete. He could not get off, he could not escape, and his son Icarus was with him, and so uh, Daedalus had what he had to work with. He had wax, and he was gathering feathers, and he constructed, this did not actually happen, I believe, um, this, you know, just so, so as I speak about it as a factual account, anyway, um, this is a legend. Uh, as, as he gathered feathers, he fashioned wings for his son, uh, because there, there was not enough time or enough material to allow uh, for the both of them to escape. And so he fashioned a set of wings for Icarus. And he taught him how to fly. And Icarus escaped the prison. Now, when we consider the last temptation of Jesus, the temptation to believe too little... That, that God was not caring for him and that he ought to take the initiative and to turn the stones into bread, we could uh, read into the story. We could say Daedalus or Icarus could have said, you know, my, my father doesn't care for me. My father wants to send me away. My father, um, and, and he could have remained imprisoned. But that's, that's not what happened. Uh, instead of believing too little, Icarus believed too much. And when he flew out of the prison, he flew higher and higher and higher towards the sun. And the sun melted the wax and the wings disintegrated and he plummeted to earth. What we see in the initial temptation uh, to turn stones into bread is, is that uh, Jesus is being tempted to believe that his father does not care for him. And now we're going to see a, a, an opposite temptation, a temptation to believe too much. The devil is defeated in round one. Jesus is hungry and he is desirous certainly to eat bread, but not at the cost of disobeying his father and stepping out of God's will. And so he resists the devil, says, I trust my father. And he remains hungry into this second temptation. So let's look at this second temptation, the temptation to believe too much. The setting, it says that the devil took him to the holy city. Um, now, took him, is this an actual ability to transport him? That's possible. Some people do uh, argue for that, but I don't believe that's the case because if you look at verse 8, it says the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I don't think there is such a place that, that Jesus could have seen that, and so I do believe this is some kind of vision microphone trouble there. Um, there's this, some kind of, of vision, some kind of uh, supernatural experience. The, the devil takes him in a, in a vision to the city of Jerusalem, that is the, the holy city, and takes him to the, to the pinnacle, to the top of the temple. 
uh, takes him to a high place. Uh, Jerusalem, theologically speaking, is the center of the world, the Jewish mind. Uh, Jerusalem is the most important place. When the temple was destroyed, when the Babylonians came in and, and the Jews were, were pulled off the land and taken to Babylon, the Jews wrote the psalm in which they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If, if we forget Jerusalem, may my, my right hand forget its skill, uh, may my, that my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. You know, there is no ability for them to worship when Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem is the important place where the altar is, where the temple is, where Messiah was to come and to appear, according to prophecy. And so the devil takes him there to the top of the temple, to the most significant place. Ezekiel 5, 5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. In Isaiah, it says that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord would be exalted above all nations, above all mountains, and all the nations would stream to it. And so this is an incredibly important national place. And now the assault comes. It comes in a very similar way, another if-then question. Um, if you are the Son of God, and we have established that you are Publicly, you were, you were anointed by your Father, but with the Holy Spirit, you were declared to be the Son of God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you told me you trust your Father. Man does not live by bread alone, Jesus had said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he did not step out of the Father's will and make bread for himself. He remained within the Father's will. You trust your Father. If you're the son of God, then leap down, throw yourself down, jump. What a crazy idea, right? You, th you think, you think what, what's up with that? You know, Jesus had, 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 uh, is, is not uh, prone to rash, crazy decisions. He's not going to just jump off the top of a building. What's the, the point of that? Uh, he's, he's got a mission. He's not just going to kill himself. But the devil is very crafty. Now, notice that, that, uh, that Jesus had defeated the first temptation by relying on the resources that are at our disposal, by, by laying hold of the Holy Spirit of God and God's Word. And now we see the devil in his second attack. He is crafty and does something different, but he does what the Lord did in the previous temptation. Throw yourself down because it's written and he quotes scripture to him. The devil quotes scripture. Isn't that an amazing idea? He quotes scripture. The devil knows the words of God. He doesn't believe them. James 2 says that, that the demons know the word of God and they shudder. But the devil borrows the Lord's weapon here to use it against the Lord Jesus, but he does not use it lawfully. That's what uh, Spurgeon says. The, the temptation here is that if he is the Son of God, that therefore the Father, if he has fully entrusted himself to him, the Father would come to his aid in a moment of need. And so he says, leap, jump. 
expose yourself to death because the scripture says God will protect you. And then he quotes the Bible. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Messiah should never encounter any trouble, the Son of God. And you are the Son of God. Should never have anything go wrong because God will lift you up and support you. And so jump from the roof of the temple with everybody watching and say, I'm the Messiah. And the angels will carry you down like Superman landing after stopping a plane from crashing into the city. And you can say, I'm I'm here, and the people will rejoice and receive you. Malachi 3.1, one of the prophecies that closes out the Old Testament says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That had happened, hadn't it, in the ministry of John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This will be your moment. You will announce yourself. You will appear. And God will, will protect you. It will be, it'll be a wonderful moment. So jump. Uh, in every temptation, there uh, is something good. The, the temptation to, to change stones into bread, there is a, a goodness in that temptation, isn't there? There's a, there's a goodness there because, because man was designed to eat and the, the desire to eat is good and natural and right. And so the devil tempts him with that. Uh, there's, there's something right here. There's a, a promise that's, that's quoted But though it contains something right, it also contains a great deal wrong. Imagine if you were given a great big glass of water. And someone says, do do you like water? And you're like, sure. You know, hydration. We're we're mostly water, aren't we, as people, you know. And and this is is good. And they're like, well, just hold on a second and then you can drink it. But I just want to put a little tiny drop of cyanide in there. And there's just a little drop. Go ahead. You'd be like, no way. I prefer my water with no cyanide in it, right? You know, I want my water pure. Uh, a little bit of, of wrong in a lot of, of right is still wrong. A little bit of wrong when it comes to God's word. A little bit of wrong when it comes to God's will is a great deal wrong. And so let's look at what, what, what Satan is doing here. He says, he will command his angels concerning you and, end quote, and begin rest of quote, on their hands they will bear you up. The actual quote from Psalm 91 verse 11 says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The devil leaves that out. The idea that the angels would be there to to divert those who might stray from that course, to warn, to rebuke, to, to challenge them and to say, no, don't go that way, go this way. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He turns the bread of the word into into poison. He misquotes it. He misapplies it. And we need to be careful that that when we uh, are tempted ourselves 
to read into a particular situation to say, this could be God's will for me, even though it doesn't sound right, even though it's not consistent with other things, but this particular scripture seems to allow me to, we need to be careful that that's not being pressed on us because it, it feeds our flesh or our sinful desire. Jesus here is pressed to, to patronize sin, to serve himself, and to serve the desire to, to leap out of God's will and make much of himself. So the devil is trying to trip him up here. What's the real temptation? The, the, the big temptation here the, the test that's being administered to the Son of God by nature. Jesus is fully God and, and fully man. It is his nature that he is a, a Son of God. The temptation, the test that's being administered to the Son of God by nature is this. Be impressive. Be spectacular. Do something amazing. You resisted in the wilderness, and you did not save yourself. The temptation there was to be powerful or to, to be relevant and to be able to do something to change your circumstances. And, and you said, no, I'll live within the will of God. But now that you want to embrace the will of God and be Messiah and be the Son of God, do something impressive. Take what's yours by right, Son of God. Leap, jump, receive your office. In the Broadway play, not recommended, um, Jesus Christ Superstar, Andrew Lloyd Webber puts these words in the mouth of Herod the king. Herod who Jesus, uh, the, the son of Herod the Great, this would be Herod uh, Antipas, I believe, um, the, uh, the, the, the son or grandson or nephew of Herod the Great. Um, Herod, when he puts Jesus on trial, desires to see him, not to clear his name, not to learn anything from him, but perhaps he would see some kind of sign. Herod says this in the play, in his song, I only ask what I'd ask any superstar. What is it that you've got that puts you where you are? Be impressive, Jesus. You want people to believe in you. You want people to follow you. You're coming in the name of God. You're the Messiah. Now do something. Show us something. Jesus will resist this temptation. He will encounter this over and over and over in his ministry. In John chapter 2, his mother comes to him and says, they have no wine. And what does Jesus say back? What does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. I'm not, I'm not, I don't do miracles as tricks. There's, there's nothing for me to do here. And when he does perform the miracle, he does it in a non-flashy way. And no one knows that he's converted the water into wine, except the one who, uh, not even the one who's serving it, but the disciples know. Matthew 16.1, it says, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And Jesus says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to that generation except the sign of Jonah. The idea that Jesus went into the grave and was, was dead for, for three days and three nights and then rose again. And even that sign was not sufficient to create belief in many. 
Jesus resists the desire to do tricks. When they found him on the other side of the sea, John chapter 6, verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then later on in the dialogue, as Jesus is talking about bread, they, even, they, 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 they show that they are missing the point. And they say, give us this bread always. Like, you, we, we, we hear you. you know, at some point, have you ever had a toddler, right, where you say, um, you cannot go out, and all they hear is out? You know, they're like, oh, I'm going out? And you're like, no, 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 I just, let me say it to you again. They, they hear Jesus say um, that it's, it's spiritual bread that they need, not physical bread, and they're like, bread, yes, give us the bread. We want bread. That's their response to him. You didn't see the sign. I showed you that I am sufficient and that I am what you need by giving you physical bread, but all you saw was the bread. And they pressed Jesus over and over and over again. Give us a sign. Impress us. Be relevant to us. Do something for us. But that is not the way that the kingdom of God works. As we see Jesus reply, I want to point out just a couple things. Um, one, I want you to notice the limits in the test. Each and every one of us will experience temptation. It happens. If you live between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21, and you, you do, then, then there are temptations because there is a spiritual war going on. But there is a limit to this test. The devil notice, is not just like taking Jesus somewhere and then kicking him off the roof of the temple, right? He's not, he's not, uh, he has no power to destroy the Son of God. He can only incite choice, leap, jump. The devil always attacks us at the point of choice. He fans the flames of, of sinful desire within us. He, he presses on us. He assaults us with reasons and rationale why we should step outside of the will of God, why God is not being kind to us, why we ought to give in to our desire and go for it. But he cannot make us do it. There are limits to the test. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has overtaken us except which is common to man. God is faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond what we're able. Well, with the temptation, we'll make a way of escape so that we'll be able to endure it. The devil is always on a chain in temptation. He cannot force, and so we can always fight back. Notice the way that Jesus responds to the bad theology here. The, the devil says to him, it is written, but Jesus says to him, again, it is written. Some uh, translations uh, put a bunch of words there, and they say, on the other hand, it is written. Jesus picking up on the trap, a very real temptation. I believe that as a man, Jesus desired to come into his kingdom. We can see in the Garden of Gethsemane that he did not desire to, to take sin upon himself, but if there was some other way, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know, if I don't have to die, then I don't want to die. Have we figured anything else out? But he knew that there was no other way, and so he embraced it. He wants to be king. It's good for him to receive all things because he's the son, and the devil is saying, do it this way, this way. And so he is resisting and sorting out this trap. 
The trap is that, is that he's being tempted to apply a truth in God's word wrongly. To use a truth in God's word to contradict the general teaching of God's word. And so the cure for, for this kind of temptation is precision in theology. Precision in understanding of what the Bible's teaching. To take the verses of the Bible and not to, not to pit them against one another, but to see how the, the scriptures make sense when it is all put together. Jesus, when he says, on the other hand, is not contradicting, but he's qualifying. Yes. What is said in Psalm 91 is true. But in other places, it is written differently, more expansively, more relevant to the situation. Jesus launches his defense from Scripture. The defense is a God-centered theology, not a me-focused theology that says, I will grab onto a verse and apply it to my present circumstances, whether it means that or not, and I will say, yes, this is the word of the Lord, for me. And so Jesus responds with a quote from the book of Deuteronomy as he did in the past. He used the book of Deuteronomy in verse 4. He uses it again in verse 6. And he says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What you are asking me to do, Satan, is to presume on the Father's power and protection. Matthew Henry points out why it's wrong to be presumptive for Jesus in this place. Because it, presuming, leaping, jumping would require further confirmation from his father. His father had already spoken. It's funny, every now and again somebody will say something like, you know, you, you believe that from the Bible? Yeah, even though there's just one verse in the Bible that, that says that, right? And if, if, you, if you believe... Um, or if, if, you, if you know, rather, what the scriptures say, it says that not one uh, jot or tittle uh, is going, those are the tiny little marks that are, are made in the Hebrew language uh, on, on the letters. Not, not one of those things is going to depart from the word of God. It's all going to be, be fulfilled. Every word, every letter in God's word is important. And so if God speaks once, if he says one thing, if he says one word on a subject, it's an important word, and we ought not to say, say that again differently in a way that pleases us. God had confirmed that Jesus was his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so to leap would further confirm if God rescued him that he was indeed the son of God and that would be presumptuous. It would also uh, require further preservation. God had led Jesus to this point and the word that he had in his heart and in his mind and the word that he was defending himself would, had preserved him to this point. He had survived the first test. What need does he have to leap to see that God is sufficient and takes care of him in the second test? Jesus' response, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, is an affirmation that he's saying, my God is to be trusted, not to be tested. I trust my Father. I trust that these circumstances that I'm in, he will preserve me, and I'm not going to put him to the test. Faith, trust in God's promises, is there for the purpose of leading us in ways of obedience not for indulging our flights of fancy. Well, if I do this, God will forgive me. 
If I go this way or, or that way, God will, God will protect me. I'll, I'll do something contrary to God's will. No. We walk in the way that he has called us to. We obey. Because when we walk in faith and obedience and we embrace his purpose and his ways and his guidelines for us, then we are led in the way of life. We're called to embrace God's purpose. And in some sense, the temptation that Jesus is being presented with here is the opposite of the way he would live the rest of his life. Think about the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, would be a patient working, a humble teaching, not impressive to those who wanted to be entertained, not impressive to those who wanted to see signs and miracles and see Jesus overthrow Rome, but impressive to sinners and losers and outcasts and the diseased. His entire life would be being unimpressive from the world's vantage point. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 30 through 31. Uh, in, in, the, in the section of scripture here, Jesus is telling a parable. He's talking about a, a rich man who uh, woke up in hell after he died and a poor man who was transported to heaven by the angels. And, and so the, the poor man, Lazarus, who had uh, laid outside the gate of the rich man and, and the, the, the dogs had licked his sores and, and the rich man had ignored him. He sees Lazarus in heaven and he says, Father Abraham... This is a parable. You know, he's calling out to somebody else in heaven and saying, send this guy, send Lazarus to go and to warn my, uh, my family members to avoid this place and to be, to be good. This is kind of like the original Christmas carol kind of, uh, of illustration here. And this is, this is um, <coughs> Abraham says they won't repent if he goes. And, and uh, the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. That will be an impressive sign. He said to the, him, this is Abraham speaking back to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be they, they, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The life of Jesus would be relatively unimpressive. Have you noticed the descriptions of the miracles in the Bible? When Jesus feeds 5,000, there's not an enormous amount of time spent on the how or the reaction of the crowd even. It's like, and they came to make him king. It's not like this long, expansive, they, you know, first, first they were like, we love this food. And then they were like, they're not fantastic miracle stories. It's just, he fed everyone. And you're like, Oh, and the storm stopped, and she was healed. It's not, there's, there's very little dramatic effect. You watch movies today, and, and oh, the stellar uh, computer-generated graphics, and, and it's marvelous to behold and impressive, and you're moved. With Jesus, it's just, he did this, and it moves on. Michael Card calls it, um, he, he, he calls it the unremarkable, remarkableness of the miracles of Jesus. What is... What do the Gospels spend most of their time emphasizing? Jesus' teaching, Jesus' actions, Jesus' laying down of his own life. The world seeks a sign. They seek someone to impress them. 
God speaks to the world from heaven with words of truth and the world is not impressed. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Because what happened? There were miraculous things that happened in the scriptures. Jesus did signs and people got angry at him. How dare you heal on the Sabbath? Really? They were unmoved and unimpressed. No, the unremarkable aspects of Jesus' life are what make the most difference in our life. John 10, 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my father. What is it that impresses the father about the son? The fact that the son says, I come to die. I come to serve. I embrace my purpose. I preach and teach as I was sent. I serve humbly. And then I give my life for the world. There's nothing miraculous about that other than the fact that the heart of the Son of God is completely sold out to honor his Father. And so Jesus rejects the temptation of the devil here to embrace a life that is impressive to the world. Because the world is not impressed, folks. The world is not impressed. And so we come to the test of the sons of God by grace. That's us. We are not sons of God by nature. We are sons of God by adoption. We've been given the right to call ourselves the children of God. That's what John 1.12 says. And so often the temptation comes to us that we should be impressive to the world. That we should have amazing impact. That the, that the work or the results of our lives ought to be so amazing, so incredible that, 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 that people would respond. Think about the temptation that's there. People want to be known, and that's a natural and good desire, but there's a craving to be famous. People want to be loved, but there's a craving to be idolized. People want to belong, but there's a desire to be indispensable. Isn't there? The, on, on, on the other end of every good desire is, is a sinful temptation. We have to acknowledge that we have something in the church, in the gospel, in Christ, but it is not what the world wants. In the wake of, of violence in the United States, the world looks to the church, the cameras and the microphones come, and they say, do you have solutions? And we say, the world is sick and needs healing from the Lord. People need to repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ. And the world says, we want someone to change things. We want someone to remove the guns or to give guns to the people or to protect the people, to arm the populace. We want someone to remove the Muslims or we want the religious people just to lay aside the religions and stop fighting. We want a real solution. But you give us what? Changed hearts? future hope, reliance, and trust that God will work everything out, we're not impressed. 
We have something, but it's not what the world wants. We need to bring the gospel to the world and we need to say, listen to what God has said and God will do the work as we winsomely, humbly, lovingly proclaim the gospel and share and serve in a way that will be largely unnoticed most of the time. We need to make sure that that when the temptation to be exceptional comes, that we avoid being arrogant and not put our God to the test. We have freedom in Christ, yes, and Christ is able and willing and sufficient to save us from our sins, but we must make sure that we walk in holiness and not presume that he's willing to save us in our sins as we sinfully disobey him. We need to make sure that we bring ourselves to Christ and we come to him and we are humble before him as we come to him and not be like the people who God destroyed. Exodus 17.1, there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? And then God says, I will, I will give you water from this rock. If you just, if you speak to it, water will come out. And, and he called, this is Moses, the name of the place Massa because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us? If he is, then certainly our lives and our ministry and everything that we do ought to be impressive to the world, right? Perhaps the evidence that God is among us is that many of the things that we do, that we're called to as Christians, are not impressive to the world. And that they view it as weakness instead. Jesus to the world is just another guy who spoke up and the government killed him. But it's in the midst of his weakness that we find our salvation. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he's commanded you. We can expect God's assistance and his intervention and his aid and his protection and that we will not stumble in a way that we fall away and are destroyed when we humbly submit to his guidance. We rely on God's promises as we obey his commandments. And so the temptation to be impressive is replaced by the desire to imitate our Lord and to be humbly dependent on him. Is the Lord here to serve us and to make our lives amazing? Inwardly, spiritually, yes, but outwardly, no. Is the Lord there to obey our commands or are we here to serve and to honor him? Luke 17, 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Psalm 123 verse 2 illustrates how how we ought to think and feel about so many things. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. In a day where the world is looking for exceptionalism and something impressive, we are called 
to be a humble, small kingdom. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, I love you. What did Jesus say? Go be impressive? No, he said, feed my sheep. A humble and small kingdom. Matthew 18, 19 through 20 says what? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Surely, then, where two or three thousand are gathered in his name, there he is in the midster, right? You know, it's, it's, it's more impressive. No, Jesus is like, that's enough. I'm there. The kingdom of heaven is like the grain of a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of yeast that a woman took and hid in, in some dough. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Yeah, treasure's impressive, right? Treasure hidden in a field. Discovered by one man who's like, oh, treasure, and he, he's like, bury that treasure so no one will see it. And then he goes and he buys the field, and everybody's like, that field's worthless, I'll sell it. And he's like, treasure's hidden right there. And then he's like, I am rich. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. The kingdom is sharing the gospel, laboring in translation, working with the poor, teaching children, encouraging the brokenhearted, embracing people in their grief, looking at, at the destruction that sin has brought on their families, and crying with them and saying, it's going to be okay. God can be trusted. Trust in the Lord and wait upon him. The church is to admit that they are weak and needy and broken people who are mostly unimpressive. And that is how the work of the church goes on. The work of the church goes on without hardly anyone noticing or knowing or being impressed as vulnerable brothers and sisters who know and are known, who care and receive care, who forgive and are forgiven, who love and receive love, who help and are helped are relatively unimpressive to the world. Is it our job to leap from the temple and say, everyone look at us, or to express our love to our Lord in the way that he demonstrated love to the world? We are to be saran wrap people. John 3.26, they came to John. And said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Remember you said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everybody was coming to you. They were all hanging out with you. And then you pointed to him, behold, everyone is going to him. We, we had a great thing going here. Everybody loved us and now they're all gone. John said a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease. What was John's job? To be seen through. To be not there. To be unimpressive. 2 Corinthians 4.2 We, Paul the Apostle, have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What do we have? The word of God and the spirit of God. And if the world is unimpressed by that, then we are not impressive. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
We come in Jesus' name, and we come in Jesus' way. And he refused to leap from the temple and to put on a show and to impress the world. And because he did that, the world was saved. We come in his name. Who do they see? Are they supposed to see you? No, they're supposed to see Jesus speaking through you as Lord through you. And we are to live in happy obscurity. The woman at the well, I'm going to close on this. She saved a whole village with her testimony, right? And yet John never writes down her name. John 4, 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer, this would, this, would, this would sting you, wouldn't it? You brought the gospel to your whole village. They all heard it and received it. You should get a certificate. Like there should be a day once a year for you. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. When Jesus asks, do you love me? And we say, yes. He tells us, feed my sheep. Embrace humility. Live in the way that I lived. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the gospel message. Rather than being a message of, of self-actualization, rather than, than being some, some technique or way in which we get all the goodies, in which we live our best life now, in which we turn from having come to Christ and go out into the world and everybody says, you are amazing. Instead, we embrace the way of humility that people might see you and see the effect that you've had on our lives and see the transformation. And we say, it is not I, but Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. We don't want people to see us. We want them to see you and we want them to see their need. And so we pray that we would live in such a way that, that people would see the church as, as something that can meet them at their point of need. We are a, 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 a hurting, broken, needy, vulnerable people who need each other and who need to be saved by you. We pray that we would humbly serve you, Lord, fighting the temptation to presume on your goodness, but instead embracing your way and living out your will in the world. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song together. Thanks.